Father, we do give praise to you tonight for drawing us here, for giving us life, for giving us breath in our lungs so that we can sing out to you all the glorious truths that we've heard about so far tonight. I pray that now as you gather us around your word that you would speak through your very imperfect and feeble servant to the people so that they might receive your word and be empowered by your spirit, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. We are continuing our series, our look at the book of Revelation, which we've called Revelation Things Get Weird. Uh, and each week, I think the book kind of begins to outweird itself. You know, it gets stranger and stranger. Although tonight, I, I got to say, I do think there's, there might be some clarity given to you tonight. Uh, I know for me, this was certainly the case. But uh, before we get into any of that, I, I do want to point out two very important things in case you're new here tonight and you have not been here with us before. Uh, there's two differences about tonight that are not normal. One... I am not normally crooked, but tonight, because I pulled out my back doing something, I, I don't know. It's a mystery. I think this is just like, hey, you're getting older, and that's what happens. Uh, I pulled out my back, so I'm crooked, so I'm sitting up, I'm standing up here, and that's why I look the way I do. And secondly, I, I never wear suits, as you guys know, but I'm wearing a suit tonight just to make everybody feel a little awkward. That's all. Um, but uh, typically, you know, I'm much more casual and relaxed. But tonight I just felt, eh, why not? Uh, so uh, honestly, I got to say about this series in Revelation, this is truly the first time as a pastor, I've been a pastor for 13 years, that I really ever tried to understand this book. I mean, I'm just being real with you, just being honest. I, I basically have ignored Revelation for most of my Christian life because it seemed too difficult to interpret. I mean, obviously, there's so much disagreement over what it means, and there's so many different viewpoints, and I just didn't want to wade into it all, and so I just kind of, it was just there. It's like, oh, yeah, the last book, and there's some good parts, but yeah, I'm not going to do anything with it. But I have to say, I have to say, I don't regret this process at all. In fact, I, through studying and teaching the book, my views about it have, have changed. I, I think I have a different understanding of this book than when I first started preaching through it. Not typically, that doesn't typically happen for preachers. Most of the time, we kind of know where we want to go and where we want to take you. This time, I've actually had some things changed in my view of this uh, very elusive writing. So... Um, for, for instance, one thing that we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, for all of my life, I thought and was pretty sure that Revelation was all about future events that are coming. That's certainly what, what I had read in books like Left Behind and uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, an older book from Hal Lindsey and various other authors that had sort of talked about Revelation as if all of it is coming, but maybe coming very soon. I now believe that an awful lot of the events actually recorded for us in the book of Revelation, maybe most of the events up until the last couple chapters, are probably depicting things that happened in the first century. This is an orthodox view, by the way, as are the others. You can be an orthodox Christian and hold to a different view. You can believe that the book of Revelation is primarily about the future, and that's fine. I'm, it's just an opinion thing. But I've become convinced that what is being depicted for us primarily in a lot of these scenes is actually 
Well, a cataclysmic event that took place in A.D. 70 when the Roman army conquered Jerusalem. And we'll talk about that tonight. So, with that noted up front, we come to the end of Revelation 15 and into Revelation 16, in which we are going to see seven bowls of God's wrath poured out in the chapter. We have recorded for us in this chapter great calamities and tears. We have the famous Battle of Armageddon. What is the Battle of Armageddon? And there are earthquakes and giant hailstones and all sorts of plagues that strangely resemble the plagues that God had brought upon ancient Egypt. So, to bring you up to speed on where we are in the book, where we last left off, we left off with a story of God being praised in his heavenly court for his uh, judgments and for his salvation of people, for his justice. And we pick it up at the end of the chapter. It reads like this. John says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure, <clears throat> excuse me, pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. What on earth is going on here? What is pictured for us here is seven angels leaving the temple of God. This is symbolism for the glory of God leaving and departing from the temple that was in Jerusalem. It's a symbol letting us know that he is bringing judgment upon the corrupt leadership of the time and is no longer going to guard against invasion or their destruction. One commentator points out that this frankly, is a little bit more than symbolic language. The pouring out of the seven bowls causing these seven plagues of Revelation 16 is a heavenly reflection of the pouring out of, of drink offerings performed by priests during the celebration of Pentecost. The very same holiday, by the way, in which the following is said to have happened in A.D. 66, when the Roman military offensive against Jerusalem was just about to begin, by the historian Tacitus. Listen to what the historian says happened at the temple. Quote, The doors of the holy place, the temple, abruptly opened. A superhuman voice was heard to declare that the gods were leaving it, and in the same instant came the rushing tumult of their departure. Tacitus isn't the only historian to record this supernatural phenomenon. Josephus writes, moreover, at that feast which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that in the first place they felt a quaking and heard a great noise, and after that they heard a sound as of a great multitude saying, 
let us remove hence. Isn't that interesting? What happens when the bowls will be poured out? Well, let's move on to verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. This idea of the mark of the beast was, we've talked about it before, it was those who had pledged allegiance to Rome. It was those who had pledged allegiance to the Roman Empire over the kingdom of God. They were worshiping and willing to give in to Caesar worship, which was a common thing, emperor worship in that day. Now, just before we move ahead, let's go ahead and, and look at what's pictured for us. We're told that a bowl is poured out, and this brings all sorts of boils uh, and painful sores to the people. Well, let's, let's read again what happened in history. We know in the Old Testament, uh, in the plague of boils that fell upon Egypt during the days of Moses, that it was a sign of judgment. All throughout this chapter, we see the same type of imagery being used as in the Egypt story. Throughout the Old Testament, the symbolism of pestilence was always meant to depict divine judgment. But again, it's not merely symbolic imagery. It's actually depicting for us real events that happened. We know that during the siege of Jerusalem by Rome, historians tell us that, that within the city, they didn't bury their dead. And yet they were stuck there in a rather small place with a lack of food and water filled with corpses just lying on the street. It is not surprising that disease would break out in conditions like that. Indeed, the, the historian Josephus again tells us that in A.D. 70, a, quote, pestilential destruction broke out in Jerusalem. Moving on to the second bowl, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and everything, every living thing died that was in the sea. Once again, the judgment here mirrors the plague of blood given to ancient Egypt, but again, this is not mere symbolism. Uh, history records that this very thing did happen during, again, the Roman siege of Jerusalem. Describing the slaughter of the people of Joppa by the Mediterranean Sea, Josephus writes, The sea was bloody a long way, and the maritime ports were full of dead bodies. Turn to the third bowl, verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Here, the fresh water is depicted as turning into blood, just as the Nile River did in Egypt when God brought the plagues upon Pharaoh. Again, this is not a mere figure of speech, folks, but something that did literally happen in the days of the siege. During this time, many of the Jewish people attempting to flee from Gadara were massacred at the Jordan River, sadly. Josephus writes of them, quote, Jordan could not be passed over by reason of the dead bodies that were in it. Verse 6, which we'll go over in just a bit, goes on to say that they were given blood to drink. Ugh. Now that's, that is, again, it's symbolism, but also really happened. Because what would happen as the rivers were filled to the brim with these dead bodies is 
as the Roman army would drown them. And they would have to, as they were drowned, they would indeed ingest this. But for now, let's skip on down to verse 8 real quick, and then we'll come back to that. Because we want to move on to the fourth bowl. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. What do we have recorded for us by ancient historians? That once again, during the Roman siege, the people of Jerusalem were said to die of heat stroke, and that it was particularly hot during the summers of the war. On top of this, we know that Rome had a scorched earth policy whenever they fought their enemies. And so they burned many of the trees that could provide shade for those who were fleeing Jerusalem, which made it all the worse. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Here, the beast, which we've said again is the Roman Empire at the time, is depicted as being plunged into darkness. Now, back in chapter 9, the beast was pictured as going into a, a dark abyss and then eventually coming back to life. This indeed did happen again during the siege of Jerusalem because during that same time period, Caesar Nero killed himself, which led to civil war and strife in the empire, causing many to believe that the empire was over. Of course, the empire was not over, and it did come back, even after such a blow. Let's move on to verse 12, to the sixth angel. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeps his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Very famous, well-known passages. Throughout the book of Revelation, Jerusalem is referred to by basically three nicknames, if you will. Sodom and Gomorrah, Egypt, and Babylon. Here, they are pictured as being like Babylon because of the reference to the Euphrates River that was used by the Jews and Christians of the day as a nickname for Rome, but because Jerusalem had given allegiance to Rome instead of to Christ, it was as if they had become one with Rome, and so the author, John, is referring to Jerusalem as their enemy, or at least their one-time enemy. We know from history that when the Babylonian Empire fell, it was the Persians from the east that came through a dry area of the Euphrates and then overtook that ancient empire. So through the use of this Jewish historical imagery, John depicts Jerusalem going down the same way that Babylon did. In fact, we, we know from history that there were literal kings from the east, Sohanus and Antiochus, 
enticed by the, by the false allure of Rome's abilities that did give themselves over to fighting against Jerusalem. And they sent troops to aid. But what about this assembling spot, Armageddon, that you've probably heard much about and it's been sort of the subject of all sorts of fantasies and movies and things, you know, this great cosmic battle. Well, I, I, I'm going to deflate that a little bit tonight. Uh, it, 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 he points out specifically that the place in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And what that means is literally mountain of truce. Once again, we're told by ancient historical sources that the troops did indeed gather for battle against Jerusalem near Mount Megiddo. And so it may just be depicting for us the spot that they gathered before invading and destroying Jerusalem. Moving on to the final bowl. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. What does the historian Josephus say happened simultaneously as Rome's troops arrived? Quote, there broke out a prodigious storm in the night with the utmost violence and very strong winds with the largest showers of rain, with continual lightnings, terrible thunderings, and amazing concussions and bellowings of the earth. That was in an earthquake. Josephus goes on, these things were a manifest indication that some destruction was coming upon men. And the system of the world was put into this disorder. We continue. Verse 19. The great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now, as I've already noted, Babylon here represents the combination of both Rome and Jerusalem, as Jerusalem and the leadership there had given their allegiance over to the Roman Empire. What was true of both Rome and Jerusalem at the time of the siege? It just happens to turn out, what do you know, again, historically, there was a three-way civil war in each. Verse 20, and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Here is pictured for us a flood that destroys everything in its path, its desolation. That is precisely what Rome did to Jerusalem. And then we come to the last verse of the passage and we'll wrap this up applying why this all matters to you, why this is significant. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds, each fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Now, at first glance, this looks like a crazy, unrealistic picture of hail. I mean, I know the Midwest gets some big hail, but a 100 pound size hail? That seems a little far-fetched. But, 
What if it's not literal hail that's being talked about, but something that looked just like a 100-pound hailstone? Listen again to what Josephus says happened during the Roman siege of Jerusalem. Quote, Titus's army hailed giant stones at the city walls to breach the city's defenses. How heavy were these stones? 100 pounds. What color does Josephus say they were? White. So, having discussed all this now, I hope you can at least understand where I'm coming from when I say I believe the events depicted for us in this book, for the most part, until we get to the last couple chapters, are almost certainly depicting the events of the siege of Jerusalem. But we're not quite done. We need to briefly close with what brought these events to pass and what their goal ultimately was, and this is why it all matters to you. Let's go back to verses 5 through 7 here. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. What brought the judgment from God? What brings the judgment from God? In this case, it was because they had killed the saints and the prophets. It was a constant refrain throughout the Old Testament. It was a constant problem that prophets would be risen up and then driven out because they delivered news that the people did not want to hear. The second reason this all comes to pass, and this is most important for us here tonight, Verse 9 and 11 tells us they refused to repent. The goal, the goal of all this, after so, so, so long, after so much patience on the part of God, still in the end, still, even now, is that they turn to him that they'd stop fighting him and that they would trust him, they'd submit to him, that they would cease being his enemies. I can't help but think of Jesus as he's coming to the city of Jerusalem and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and persecute those who have been sent to you, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing, you were not willing. The fact is, there is going to be a day when judgment does come to the bigger, broader world. It won't just be for one part of the world. There will be an end. But the fact that there has not been an end yet tells us that God is still in the business of saving sinners who repent. It just simply means to turn to him, 
It doesn't mean you have to do anything. It simply means that when he says, I forgive you all of your sins on account of what Jesus Christ has done, you say, okay, thank you. Sounds good. It's just turning from your sin to a good and righteous God. And that is my, my prayer for every single one of us, every single day. Because the truth is, we're no different than what Jerusalem was like at the time. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are worthy of judgment. All of us have earned it. But God is so gracious that he spares us and has instead chosen to adopt us into his family. And that is true for all the people outside of this building as well. God is still in the business of doing that, and that is what and where we find our hope. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would guide us now, Father, to trust you, to know that you are good and that you are just, that your judgments, even though you are long-suffering and patient, that, that they will come, and they do come. You're a God of your word. Help us not take that word lightly, but help us heed it so that we would not fall into the same trap as those who have come before us. And now, Father, we pray the prayer that our Savior gave us with one voice, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.